Our text this morning, as we hear from the living God in his word, is Mark chapter 16, verses 1 to 8. Last Sunday, a group of readers led us through Mark's passion narrative that began in chapter 14, verse 1, and ran for 119 verses to the end of chapter 15. This morning's reading, if we don't count the part that Marion read earlier that was also read last week from the end of chapter 15, this morning's reading is eight verses. 119 verses centered on the cross, the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ in Mark's gospel. Eight verses centered on the resurrection. But on this Easter morning, what I propose for your thinking is that without the resurrection, the cross would mean nothing. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not the epilogue to the gospel. It is the high point of the gospel. It is the climax of the life of Jesus. Without the resurrection, there would be no salvation. As important as the cross is, the church has never met on Fridays. The church has always met on Sundays because the church has always understood the priority of the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus is, in fact, the key to our own resurrection. Those who believe in Jesus Christ are to be raised from the dead as he was, physically, literally, bodily, into a resurrection form in which we'll live forever. And so before we consider Mark's gospel account, let's turn briefly over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, not to spend long there, but to listen to how the Apostle Paul describes the importance of the resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised, on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Notice Paul's main emphasis there. Yes, he mentions the cross, and yes, he mentions the burial, but Paul's main emphasis is on the evidences of Christ's resurrection. 
because the resurrection is the culminating event in the life of Jesus. In fact, it's the culminating event in divine redemption. It is the cornerstone of the gospel. Still in 1 Corinthians 15, reading now from verse 14, Paul says, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. Or, to put it as we did earlier, without the resurrection, the cross would mean nothing. Verse 18, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. The resurrection is the source of eternal life for those who believe. Verse 20, but in fact, Paul says, Christ has been raised from the dead. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. And so as we turn to Mark's account this morning, let me complete this thought. I've already said that without the resurrection, the cross would mean nothing. Let me also put it positively this way, that because of the resurrection, the cross means everything. I would even say we celebrate the resurrection as what makes the cross meaningful. We cannot separate the cross from the resurrection any more than we can separate the resurrection from the cross. And so it is that Mark, like all the Gospels, tells the story of Jesus' crucifixion followed by the initial account of his resurrection. Or perhaps we should say, the initial account of those who discovered that he had been raised. Because you probably know that none of the Gospels provide a description of the resurrection itself. No one saw it. No one could explain it. How it happened is frankly incomprehensible to us. But that it happened is the critical matter for all four of the gospel writers. Of the four gospels, Mark's account is the briefest, only eight short verses. I do think, parenthetically, that the gospel of Mark ends there in verse 8, abruptly and climactically. Most scholars concur that verses 9 through 20, though they may be printed in your Bibles, are not part of Mark's original text. That could be the topic for another time. But in these eight verses, Mark's concern is not to delve into the implications of the resurrection, 
Mark's concern is to give testimony to the fact that Jesus did in fact rise from the dead, that it happened as he had said it would. From the beginning, Jesus had said this. Mark chapter 8, verse 31 says, And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, Mark tells us. Jesus, in fact, repeatedly said this to his disciples. And every time Jesus identified a period of time between death and resurrection in the Gospels, it was always three days. So Mark's main concern is to show us that this is, in fact, what happened. And in Mark's account, we see evidence of the resurrection along three lines. We have the testimony of the empty tomb, number one. The testimony of the heavenly angels, number two. And the testimony of the eyewitnesses, number three. The empty tomb, the heavenly angels, the eyewitnesses. Or if you think about it, it means we have three types of testimony. Testimony from historical fact, testimony from heavenly revelation, and testimony from personal eyewitnesses. Mark wants to show that Jesus did what he said he would do and to give evidence for it. So we begin with the testimony of the empty tomb. Verse 1 tells us we're with the women when the Sabbath was over. Now, the Sabbath was a Saturday. And keep in mind that though we think of days as ending at midnight, in the Jewish way of accounting for them, days were marked at sundown. So that we're now about 12 hours into the day after the Sabbath at this point. It's Sunday now. It's the third day. Jesus was in the grave on Friday. He was in the grave on Saturday. And he'd been in the grave for some amount of time on Sunday. And it's early in the morning. And Mark says, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. These were the women who had followed Jesus in Galilee. Mark chapter 15, verse 41 says, When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. They'd been following Jesus everywhere. And they'd been ministering to him, Mark says, which is not something it ever says the disciples did. Only these women and at other points, angels are said to have ministered to Christ. And we know that they'd been looking on at the cross. Verse 40 says that. We're to understand that they, these women, had seen his burial also. And now on Sunday, they come back. Why? Well, Mark says they bought spices that they might come and anoint him. These were women who'd been with Jesus for a couple of years, perhaps. 
They loved him. They served him. They even worshipped him. And now they're caught up in horrific sadness. They'd gone through the Sabbath day and they'd now gotten up in the darkness of Sunday morning to come back, really at the first opportunity, in other words, because they couldn't have come on the Sabbath, wouldn't have been permitted. We can only imagine the questions they have, the fears they have, the anxieties they have, but they loved Jesus. So they're going to go back and do what loving families would do. They were going to put the spices on his body. And it's daybreak. John says it was still dark when Mary Magdalene arrived and that she then immediately ran to tell Peter and John what she had seen. But Mark doesn't give us those details. Still, we can understand that it's sunrise time. And Mark says that as the women arrive in verse 3, they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? They knew where the tomb was and they knew the stone had been rolled over it and they're wondering how they're going to remove it. Then verse 4 says, And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. This is a shock. If we were to ask, well, what are they going to conclude from that? then I think the answer probably is that they would have initially concluded what John tells us Mary Magdalene had concluded, if you recall. They've taken the Lord out of the tomb. They've stolen the body. They were not one of them expecting resurrection. They had come with spices to anoint the dead Jesus. That's the point. They find the stone rolled back. How did that happen? Well, again, Mark does not say. But the Gospel of Matthew tells us in his account, in Matthew chapter 28, verse 2, in the end of Matthew chapter 27, we find out Pilate had sent a guard of soldiers to secure the tomb on the Sabbath. Probably the women did not know that. And then in chapter 28, verse 2 of Matthew, we read there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. That's how the stone got moved. And it was moved not to let Jesus out, right? It was moved to let the women in. And the guards became like dead men, Matthew says, and the women arrive, and there are no soldiers there now. And verse 5 in our chapter says, the women entered the tomb. And what I want to point out is that in the way Mark has crafted this brief account, everything he's been building up to so far in chapter 16 is that the tomb is empty, brothers and sisters. All four Gospels make this point in their own way. The tomb was empty. The disciples didn't steal the body. They didn't even believe in a resurrection. So they certainly didn't need to fake one in order that they might die for something that didn't happen. 
they'd all fled Jesus when he went to the cross, remember? Unlike the women. The Roman soldiers knew they didn't steal the body. The women knew they didn't steal the body. All the physical facts made clear the tomb was empty and everybody knows the body wasn't stolen. Matthew explains that the Sanhedrin, in fact, bribed the soldiers with money to say that Jesus' disciples came to steal the body in the night while they were sleeping on the job. The first line of testimony that has to be dealt with one way or another is that the tomb was empty. Which brings us then to the second testimony in Mark's account, the testimony of the angels. Still in verse 5, Mark says, And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. Alarmed is a good translation there. The verb means to be terrified, not in the sense that you fear for your life, but in the sense that there's something around that can't be rationally comprehended. You can't get it. You can't grasp it. You can't explain it. And the angel speaks in verse 6. He understands their reaction. He says, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen, the angel says. Literally, he has been raised which is important because it signals for us that God the Father was involved here. Peter will say in his Pentecost sermon, God raised Jesus from the dead. The women are not going to find Jesus there in the tomb, as if Jesus had just come back to life somehow as a mortal to die again someday. He is not here, the angel says. See the place where they have laid him. This is the testimony of the angels. There was the historical reality of the empty tomb, and now there is the divine revelation from the heavenly messengers who speak for God. He has risen. He is not here. Which then brings us to the third line of evidence, the third testimony, and that is the testimony of the eyewitnesses to which Mark only alludes. The angels continue to talk in verse 7, and they give the the women a command. But go, the angel says, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Jesus had said in Mark chapter 14, verse 28, But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So Jesus had told the disciples this already. But now the angels tell the women to go tell them the same thing again. Only the disciples didn't go there. (laughs) Not yet. You've read the other gospel accounts. The disciples don't even believe the women's account when they hear it. That night, Jesus would appear in the upper room 
in Jerusalem as they and the others were there huddling in fear. During that week, Jesus would appear to two of them on the road to Emmaus. According to 1 Corinthians 15, which we read earlier, Jesus appeared to Peter and he appeared to James. And the next week, eight days after that first appearance, he appears to them again. All of those appearances were in and around Jerusalem because they didn't go to Galilee. Not yet. Eventually they do, of course. And according to Acts chapter 1, Jesus spends 40 days with them, speaking to them of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So we know there's eyewitness testimony to the risen Christ. We know that the astonishing wonder of the experience at the tomb unfolds into eyewitness accounts. We know the disciples will see Jesus, eat with Jesus, touch Jesus, see his nail prints, see the spear scar in his side. But for now, to follow where Mark takes us here at the end in verse 8, we're left in the immediacy of the women's response as they flee. In verse 7, the angel tells them to go, and in verse 8, it says they went, and not slowly, these women will be the first to give human testimony to the resurrection of the Christ. But Mark's emphasis is on their astonishment. The wonder of this resurrection reality has to take shape in them, as it must also in us. The empty tomb, the angelic message, this is not easy to grasp. Verse 8 says, And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Mark focuses on how they initially respond to what they've just taken in. The word astonishment can have the sense of some kind of Transcendent feeling as though being detached from reality. They were afraid, Mark says, because they're dealing here with an experience that transcends reason. They cannot process what's going on. We tend to use the word fear when we're anticipating something bad happening to us. But that's not the sense of things here. This is more the sense of being unable to give a rational explanation for the realities that have just broken now into their understanding. They're stunned, is the idea. And so initially, as they fled, they were in this condition of not being able to give reasons or explanations for what was going on. And that's the way Mark leaves it. I think we can relate to that. Yes, we know the women would give testimony to what they'd experienced. The other Gospels tell us that. But there's a lot happening internally in these first moments. It had to have taken some time for them to figure out what to say, how to react. Resurrection is not a category they know how to think about. And so Mark ends with the bewildering fear of it all. 
Easter is a frightening prospect. But we also know that that fear would begin to turn to joy. Some things would begin to become clear, no doubt, but most importantly, if you know the Gospel of Matthew, you know what happened as the women fled the tomb. Matthew chapter 28, verse 9 says it. The women were running, and there was fear and joy, Matthew says, when, behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. They were the first eyewitnesses, these women. And now they will do as the angels told them, and as Jesus also told them according to Matthew, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. The empty tomb, the angels, the eyewitnesses, it's all to establish the fact of the resurrection, the most important event in the life of Christ, the most important event in the history of the world, the most important event in your life and mine. As we close, listen again to the Apostle Paul, this time in Romans chapter 4, verse 25. There, Paul writes about Jesus who was delivered up for our transgressions. That is the cross, where Jesus was handed over for execution because of our trespasses. Jesus died for our sins. Paul says Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The cross and the resurrection go together. Jesus could die for our trespasses, but what good would it have done had he not been raised? The only way we can be in the right before God is because Jesus was crucified and resurrected. Which is why Paul goes on to say in Romans chapter 5 verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, without the resurrection, the cross would mean nothing. Because of the resurrection, the cross means everything. It will take the women and the disciples some time to sort this out, as it will for us. But wherever you are, in your understanding of it all, this morning I encourage you to declare together Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Amen.